So we were teaching the uh, children of the police chief, the mayor, the gang, the the biggest gangster in the town, um, military officers, all of these types of people, and um, that was my Chinese friends' favour to them, along with other things as well. Mm. Having by teaching their kids, a parents' evening. Yeah. This is Tom, a friend and another recovering English teacher who did his stint in the Chinese interior, in Qiyang, town in Hunan, which, so he says, is famous for everybody lying. And that this town had a reputation for producing liars, <laughs> the biggest liars in the、uh, county. Really? Yeah. Maybe that's a big yeah, lie. Yeah. <laughs> and、uh, yeah, so they they have a reputation. I was warned by several people in that town who were not connected to each other not to trust the people in the town. <laughs> and that wasn't just because I was a foreigner; they 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 scam each other constantly. It's just one experience of many, and I think it's fair to say that Tom came away from China without too much fondness for the place. This is a bit of a ramble, but we talk about Tom's experience as the only foreigner in the town, being befriended, witnessing the power struggles between different interests in the city, and also attempt to zoom out and ask if the small town mentality can tell us anything about China as a whole. And how people feel about the Chinese system as a competitor to Western liberal democracy. Okay, so I'm here with Tom. Say hi. Hi. And Tom is an English teacher,、uh, but these days he's working online. He doesn't teach in person anymore. But he used to be an English teacher in China, just like me. But his experience was quite different to mine, and that's because he was in a very different location. I was Tom. I was in the、uh, I was on the east coast.、Mm-hmm. We've、uh, kind of gone through this before, but for the for the record,、um, Shanghai, China's city in the world. You know, China's、mm-hmm. international city, but also、um, in, uh, for my first year in a city called Changshu, which is which is a small city. About twice the size of Seattle,、mm-hmm. as I understand,、mm-hmm. which still only takes it up into the、yeah. couple of millions, maybe. I think I think it was double the size of T- Seattle, or something like that. I'd still have to check. You know. Seattle had a population of seven hundred thirty-seven thousand people in twenty twenty, according to the United States Census Bureau. Although the metropolitan area had four million, Changshu had one point five million in two thousand eighteen, according to Wikipedia. Either way, you know, it's a city,、mm. but in 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 Chinese standards, it, it was a town. But it's still not, I think, the kind of experience you had. My 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 experience, the the town I was in,、mm. the city I was in, whatever you might want to call it, it had shopping malls,、mm. big shopping malls, bars.、Mm. It had a, a small expat community, but、mm. nothing like Shanghai, which has got hundreds of thousands. You know, whatever. But my my city, very small expat community, but bars, shopping malls,、mm. big billboards with Westerners smiling out of it,、yeah. and all that kind of stuff. How how does yours compare to that kind of East Coast city life that I had? So where I was could be described as、um, the sticks or a backwater.、Um, this place was very very inland. It was a long way from any major city,、um, so that meant it was、um, far less developed. 
it meant that the way the place was run in terms of the government and the police was less by the books we should say yeah but the interesting thing is that see i wouldn't even be i wouldn't even know to comment on that mm. for me that was another yeah. well but for you yeah. it sounds like that was something that was actually yeah. almost available yeah yeah definitely so First of all, they don't hide it as much in these places because they're not so worried about getting caught out because they're a long way from Beijing. So, so where was it you were at? Um, Hunan province in a town called Qi'an, uh, which was also the name of the county. Qi'an. Qi'an. Hunan is where Mao was from, is that right? Exactly, yeah. So um, I was in one of the poorest places in that province. So it was very undeveloped. Um, it was, there was a very strong peasant culture there. Um, even in the city itself, a small city, it, w- it had the feel of a village. So people didn't behave like they were in a city. So there was a lot of spitting in the street. Um, there was a lot of um, people pushing carts of um, agricultural produce, mm. markets, people selling their wares on the street. And... Yeah, I the, the I kind of fell in because the people I met there, I met a couple who were who just approached me one day in a supermarket and started speaking English to me, and I made friends with them, and they were kind of wealthy people. So um, in China, at least uh, in the interior, if you're wealthy, you know other wealthy people. You need to make connections. You need to have good guangxi, guangxi the relationships, because if not, people will victimize you. So um, that meant that, and you need you need to have connections from different areas for different purposes. So the friends I had there, they had uh, friends who are police chiefs, uh, business people, uh, doctors, gangsters, and uh, people involved in the local government. So um, um, teachers as well, people involved in the local education system. Yeah. So. Pretty much across the board. Oh, military officers as well. They were important. So, so by by happening across this couple, yeah, you you ended up. I they became of, your yeah. friends. Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I um, I made good friends with them. I did kind of see a bit of um, that side of China before that, anyway, because as I said, they don't really hide it. So uh, before you kind of before see that, that yeah. you were. You were working in a primary school or was, a state yeah, was, school? Yeah, or? I was teaching there in a, we call it a secondary school. Right. And, um, yeah, I, I saw a bit of that side of things. It's, it, they kind of have a, a parallel system there, a way that things work kind of behind the scenes that's very corrupt and based on um, personal relationships. Mm. So my, the school was that I worked in was a business. Yeah. It was run as a business designed to extract the most money possible from the students, although I think it was technically a state school. Really? For example. I think it was. I'm not exactly sure. It's yeah, a bit ambiguous yeah. sometimes. Yeah, the bloke, he was not an educator. The bloke that ran the school, ran the school he was not an educator. But he's probably still getting money from the state. Yeah, probably. He was get, I'd probably get money from everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, but when I met these two, I started to see, you know, the kind of nuts and bolts of the team. They, they were your friends, or yeah. did you... Yeah, I, I, and, but then I, I worked with them as well, because we started teaching English together, and okay. we set up, 
we started or we set up a little English school in their house. Okay. So, so that was a side hustle? That was our main thing. Because after I finished teaching the school, I started working with them in their house. I lived with them in this house. Right. And we had classrooms. Okay. Oh, right. Okay. Desks. Um, interactive, you know, computer. Yeah. Smart boards. Yeah. The latest technology. We had a mini library there. So you set up a different system with these people. Yeah. yeah but because of their status within the mm. city, yeah. you came across, you interacted with the people from... Yeah. From the kind of... I mean, I don't really know what you'd call it, but I, I'd maybe just say that it's just a parallel system. It's the way that things work. It's the way that things really work. So if, if someone wants something done, uh, somebody who knows someone will contact their person and either that person can help them out or they know someone. Everything is done through personal connections. Yeah. And these... Connect there. They're not really friends, but they get drunk with each other a lot um, on a regular basis, and they call each other brother, but it's purely um, self-interested. They don't really have any real loyalty um, beyond their own personal benefit. But this struck you as somehow different from, like, you know, we all have friends who can do us favours. You know, yeah. that's, that's the same thing over here. Yeah. But this, this, was, this was a little different, right? Yeah, yeah, because all of these people had positions of influence and they, Chinese people there would consciously seek out people who had certain influence. It wasn't an accident that these people were friends with each other, mm. as I, I use the term friends very loosely. This is Guangxi. They're very open about these things. They say, you know, they use the word Guangxi. They say we need to set up a relationship with someone. Mm. So it's quite consciously done. There isn't too much artifice in it beyond the fake smiles and uh, compliments. Um, but for the most part, everybody knows what's going on. It's, you know, um, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Right. So, for example, even in, even in our school, so um, the students we taught were a mixture of partly the, the best students in the town, because we could afford to be choosy, because I was yeah. the only English... Um, native speaker in the town so our school was um, very high demand so the best most well behaved students and the other ones were all just the sons and daughters of the most important people in the town so we were teaching the uh, children of the police chief the mayor the gang the the biggest gangster in the town um, military officers all of these types of people and um, that was my Chinese friends favour to them, along with other things as well. Mm. Having by teaching That's their the hell kids, of a parents' evening. Yeah. <laughs> so, so by teaching these kids, um, we had a lot of um, favours we could pull in if necessary, and also the, the most important thing was re really protection because there were gangsters in these towns, and um, these small towns they they prey on people, and. Um, Actually, on a couple of occasions, gangsters turned up, not while I was there, but they turned up and tried to extort money from my friend. From from the business that you were involved in? Yeah. And, um, in what? But protection he's, racket, kind of? Yeah. So they just turn up and say, you know, we're going to need some money. But the his father-in-law, he knew gangsters as well. 
he had his own gangsters, so those gangsters came and told the other gangsters to go away. <laughs> this happened a few times. One of the times he actually called his military officer friends who turned up carrying big knives and told the, the gangsters to go away. So there's a bit of a Wild West thing going on yeah. in this town. So it was, it, was, it was very interesting to see, quite sad as well, to see how um, my Chinese friends there directly told me that in China, or at least where they were, um, people didn't really have friends in the way that we understand the word friend in the US, in the in the West. So for them, yeah, a friend is someone you, who you work with or who can help you in some way. But for them, it's really about family. So right. the people you have loyalty to or you're supposed to have loyalty to is your family. These friends that I live with, for example, they said they don't have friends. They considered me to be a, a friend, a real friend, but for everyone else, they considered me to be a... Um, just a useful connection who they could call upon for a favourite at some point in the future. You said that you were the only Westerner in town, so you probably stood out a little bit. Mm. And how did that feel? I thought it was funny, uh, for the most part, um, a, a novel, uh, especially in the beginning. So I would be stared at constantly. Um, also, people stared at me in the way that a baby stares at you. Right. Or a dog stares at you, right? <laughs> and it doesn't matter if you look back at them, they're looking at you with this kind of empty, sort of glazed-over look. <laughs> they, don't, they don't care about if you feel uncomfortable or anything like that, especially the old men. They did that a lot. A lot of them had never seen a white person before. Um, no, no, most people in that town have never seen a white person before in real life. Right. Um, so that was, yeah, weird, but mostly funny. Um, I got called a Laowai a lot. I got heckled quite a lot. And, yeah, treated like an oddity. Yeah, lots of comments about me looking like a, like a monkey because I've got body hair and uh, various other things. Um, but it only really bothered me after a couple of years because it was just the staring that got to me. Hmm. Eventually, it got to me because, and I try, I try to outstare them sometimes, like stare them down, but it didn't work because they weren't looking at me like a person. They were looking at me like a thing. Hmm. You know, you Is can see, you, yeah, you can see in someone's eyes. There's a little glint in their eyes when they're looking at you like a person. When they're looking at you like an object, there's a glaze there. Okay. And this is all. This is also actually one of the. Because uh, I got I got uh, scammed a lot while I was there as well. Often when people look at you like they're looking at an object, they look they have this look in their eyes as well when they're scamming you, and this kind of glazed expression. Um, they don't. There's no real humanity in there at that moment, at least, because they're they're, in, they're not scamming a person. No, they're scam. They they they're. There for a reason. There's this thing they need to get resources out of. Hmm. Um, yeah. So it's almost like you can you can look in their eyes and work out if someone's scamming you. Yeah. I, well, yeah. I've, I've got a pretty good idea of when someone's doing that, and that really helped me when later on I lived in Romania because Romania was like a playground compared to China. So <laughs> I was super streetwise there. Uh -huh. um, but anyway, yeah, I did get some strange reactions. I didn't really, yeah, I didn't really mind it. 
because for for every one person that would make fun of me, I would uh, have maybe a hundred other people being really nice and smiling at me and uh, being friendly. So yeah, it was it was fine. Uh, it was just a bit strange when I would be going about my daily life there, uh, going to eat in you know restaurants that I eat in every day there for months and months maybe. But then I'd still be treated like I like I had just arrived, you know, like I was an oddity. So yeah. that was quite strange. Like my feeling of mundanity compared with their reaction of like, what's he doing here? Yeah. Why is he here? Why does he look like that? <laughs> you know, things like this. Why does he have so much hair on his arms? <laughs> things like this. But I think um, maybe eventually, like going back to the the kind of parallel system that I described, eventually I started to feel quite sick um, because of that kind of culture. Because people victimise themselves so much there. They victimise each other. They um, scam each other constantly. Um, they They were constantly lying. So I never knew who to trust. And I, I really felt quite disorientated. When you say people are constantly lying, what makes you sure about that? What, what makes you be able to work that out? Well, I would, for example, the people that I knew, I would often be able to tell when they were lying because I would know what the truth was because I knew them. Well, you mean they were lying to other people? They were lying to other people. And then afterwards, they would tell me that the other person had lied to them because they knew information about this other person. Or they knew someone who knew that other person. Also, people in this town told me that people in this town lied a lot. (laughs) And that this town had a reputation for producing liars. (laughs) The biggest liars in the county. Really? Yeah. Maybe that's a big lie. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so they, they have a reputation. I was warned by several people in that town who were not connected to each other not to trust the people in the town. And that wasn't just because I was a foreigner. They, they, they scam each other constantly. Um, and well, this, this all comes back to the way they see things. Um, they, they see society as a jungle. So it, it's, it's survival of the fittest. If you don't victimize other people, they will victimize you. Okay, so they say either you're a wolf or you're a sheep. And if, if you're, to, to not be a sheep, you have to be a wolf. So, for example, like the gangsters in the town, they often had big wolves tattooed on their backs to show people that they were wolves. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just comes down to things like, um, you know, lying when you need to, threatening people when you need to, um, tricking people in various ways. It, it can be from something really, really small, for example, um, I used to go to buy some tea in a in a tea shop, some green tea, and then you would you would try the tea. That you'd have a tasting session. You'd have a chat to them for like half an hour. Then you'd decide on the tea you wanted. You'd buy it, but then when you got home, you discover that the tea they'd given you was not the nice tea. It was either completely old tea, or it was um, cheap tea mixed with good tea, mm. for example, or just all cheap tea. So. That we that happened in every single tea shop I went to. That's even with my Chinese friend. Right. So it wasn't just because I was a foreigner. Um, and he said that's what they do to everyone. Right. They don't care. They want to make money quickly. They don't want repeat customers. So um, 
or being sold like old nuts like they've got outdated nuts they could just sell you the normal yeah. nuts they have but they want to sell you the old nuts so when I was in Shanghai I had a little nut shop mm. underneath my house and it was all good nuts yeah <laughs> yeah that's what you want it was different but that's the interesting thing isn't it so the culture is very different between the two places yeah. because of different expectations by all the people and all sorts of complicated things yeah. but you mentioned the wolf and the sheep and I wonder like there's this concept of the wolf warrior mm-hmm. I think okay. you know that I'm not familiar with it no but it comes from the um, one of the movies one of the Chinese movies and it's called wolf warrior diplomacy right. and it's it's like the model for Chinese diplomacy now sometimes right, right. but the way that they're quite I haven't seen the movie wolf warrior but big hit in China and kind of a model of how to communicate with the outsiders in a kind of belligerent way. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if, obviously, there are differences throughout China in its, in its, in its micro-cultures and stuff. Your, your place is very different from my place. Mm. But what did your place tell you about China as a whole? Does the wolf, um, you know, system... Yeah, the microcosm where you were does that expand to the whole thing is that how you think about China these days as, a, as an entirety well for the most part I think because um, the, the way this town was described to me uh, was the real China so this was a town that was representative of most of the country when I eventually moved to Guangzhou one of the big eastern wealthy cities and tried to set up an English school there with my Chinese friend, we soon discovered that it was extremely corrupt. And we had expected it to be less corrupt, and it wasn't really. Right. Or at least the corruption was more sophisticated. It was just less personal, maybe, in a way. I don't know. I'd say throughout the culture there's this parallel system of gangsterism and corruption. It's just the scale changes, for the most part. And... You can't be so blatant about stuff, you know. Like, I mean, for example, one of the one of the uh, politicians in a town near us, he had a a man who had accused him of corruption. He, he had his hands cut off by his gangster friends, for example. You can't do that in Beijing. That's what I mean. So, um, that's pretty extreme. Yes. Yeah, it is. So. How, how do you know that that happened? Well, I, uh, my friend told me. Yeah. And you can hear you hear lots of stories, and um, you kind of get a feel of you know what may or may not be true. Right. You know, I just going on the the attitudes of people there. I mean, for example, one one um, way of confirming it is seeing how people responded to that. Was it outrage or was it? Okay, right, that happened, right. And that, that, there wasn't any outrage when, when my friend told his cousin that, for example, his cousin said that bloke was an idiot. He should have kept his mouth shut. So, yeah, these things happen. You know, you have secret prisons across the country. They torture people. They beat people up. People disappear. And I met a lot of really, really unpleasant people really, really bad people that victimise people, so it didn't surprise me. They're talking about, you know, really messing people up and um, in all kinds of ways. 
So yeah, it was in line with the cruelty that I saw, the casual cruelty that I saw from from people. It didn't surprise me at the time when I heard it, really. Um, what, when you heard what? When I heard that this bloke had his hands cut off. Right, right, right. So it was kind of like, okay. Like, it, it would have shocked me a lot more if I had not known what I had known. Do you think that this kind of corruption comes from the top and is part of the system, i.e. the... I think I think that co- corruption really comes out of... Um, a, well, it might be an obvious point. It comes out of a system. It can only work with a, 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 as, a as a parallel way of doing things. So the, the system itself... And, and how it functions, um, that could produce a lot of corruption or not so much corruption depending on how it's set up. And well-functioning institutions take a long time to set up. You need a kind of a culture in those institutions. You need checks and balances and many other things. It's um, like a fragile ecosystem. Is a clean institution, or a relatively clean, or mostly clean institution, is like a fragile ecosystem. Whereas um, a corrupt one is um, one where you have you don't have any checks and balances, and where you know something has just gone wrong, and then corruption spurs like a disease. And you tend to find this in post-communist countries because they have these really large bureaucracies with a lot of unnecessary paperwork mm. um, and especially in a country where you haven't had a history of transparency and the free press and the rule of law you know you know apolitical law uh, you tend to get corruption growing because you know it has space to grow and people end up having they, they face opportunities that they can't resist, and those opportunities are there, you know, you've got lots of money involved, and um, it can get to the stage where, well, as in China, if, you, if you're if you not corrupt, they don't trust you, you know, ironically, so this is what my Chinese friends told me, mm. so, you know, you have to be corrupt, if you don't take the bribes, then you're a liability, because everybody's taking bribes, and they'll be worried that you're going to shock them. So um, you've got to take the bribes mm. to be an honest person, to be trusted. Yeah. So that's kind of the way it works. So that's when it's, it kind of has its own dynamic. I mean, it's basically a, a client-based system in politics, as it is also there in, in business and other areas. So you, you know, almost feudal. You owe your allegiance to someone who owes their allegiance to someone But are they all party people? You're... Um... The various no various types you're talking about. Some of them are, some of them are, yeah. But just careerists. They're not. They're not communists. They don't believe in any of that. Yeah, like, but you don't. You're not a communist if you're in CCP, are you necessarily? You no, know? that's that's my point. I mean, but are they in the just, party? That's, that's what I'm. Yeah, that's the difference. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were party members. Some. Yeah. Were, some of them were the party military members. ones. The gangsters. The um, not the one I. Some um, it was difficult to tell because you have communist party members from all, all areas of life there. You, know, you they don't have you to wouldn't, be they won't tell people. you, will they? 
No, but a lot of people are, but, you know, it's just they don't care. It's not a big thing. It's right. like, yeah, I'm a party member. That's it. It's just... That say, it's about 100 million. It's good, for their, party, it's good for their career. Yeah. yeah. Um, I never met a single, you know, believing communist or China or socialist. No. Or anything like that. They'd kind of pay lip service to it sometimes, but they just were talking about... Um, something about the people. Say something about the people. Yeah. As opposed to the big bosses, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, say I found that as well when, when I, I heard about like liberation, liberation days and things with liberation. I knew that was something to do with communism. That wasn't to do with actually freeing people from anything or making them free. That was something to do with the, the feudal to um, communist transition. Yeah, but I mean, you can... Apart from the Japanese. I mean, you can, yeah, you can make sense of the, I mean, the power of this stuff. If you think about, I mean, in 1949, the communists win China, and it makes total sense from from their perspective. They're not bullshitting. They think that, I mean, at least at the beginning, I mean, it turns pretty bad fairly quickly. But, you know, they've had 25 years of civil war. And in the middle of that is World War Two. Mm. I know, you know, so they've got the Japanese they've been fighting or fighting off, and the nationalists, mm. um, who themselves were obviously deeply corrupt, mm. um, terrible rulers of the country in many ways, all sorts of terrible crimes. And previous to that, you've got warlords, and and then before that, you've got the empire mm. and stuff. So. And and a lot of the those uh, in living memory of of those people would be imperial days, where the British were coming mm. in and calling the shots and all this stuff. So there is a lot of stock in that the word of liberation, you know, and that that rings true with a lot of people, even though yeah, it's, it's gonna it's hollow, it's it's empty and it's it's essentially meaningless. I would say uh, it brought in way 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 more control over people's lives than they ever had before. So they actually lost freedom. So they're always actually the opposite to liberation, in my view. You had a lot more freedom of, yeah, but of just your general. Do you mean? Do you mean in the, the in the high communist years, or even now? Um, nowadays, I don't know. Yeah, and the high the kind of high communist years. Yeah, you could say that the idea of liberation is a joke. Nowadays, yeah, it's 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 eased up. You know, if if you kind of want to skip a few decades and. Uh, you know, you know, tens of million killed. Then you could, then you could say, yeah, they've had a kind. There's a kind of a liberation there. You could say the the opening up, really. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, high point in the nineties, yeah. really. Yeah. Or, or the eighties, probably pre Tiananmen Square. Yeah. I think is the consensus. Oh yeah. Although yeah. even in the nineties and noughties, at that particular time, you know. Uh, Western democracy is a very, you know, it's a, it seems to be doing a lot of good in the West and it seems to be a very kind of productive process and people seem to be happy. Mm. And um, therefore, how do you defend your system? How do you defend your socialism with Chinese characteristics? Whereas now, post um, Great Recession mm. and with the, um, the various turmoils of uh, the last decade that we've had, Chinese system is in the ascendant, and um, you know they are not looking back as far as I can see. 
and and a lot of Chinese as well. Even the ones who know it, you know. Of course, you've got the Chinese. Who, you could say you've got the Chinese people who are, um, say, reared on their own propaganda and uh, they don't know any better and stuff. But even those who know better, as it were, and the ones who mm. are quite in touch with the way things work in the West, they're like, well, why do we want that shit? Mm. You know, we've got a um, we've got a system which seems to work. You know, so. I think I blame communist propaganda for this. In a country with thousands of years of civilization, advanced bureaucracies, high art, and a real strong kind of consciousness of who they are, it's it's fascinating to see the lack of a basic understanding of world history and of society. It's they have a very, very poor knowledge about what's worked well, what hasn't worked well in history. And I see that a lot. But in uh, Chinese history, they've always had the authoritarian rulers throughout the entirety of it. Yeah. They've never had any democracy. You know? yeah. So why would they think that a democracy might work better for them? Well, what I was saying is about the, the, the communist propaganda would make them think that their current system... Well, it's the best one, and um, it would make it seem somehow natural, and um, you know, they take a common sense view towards it. And well, obviously, they they strictly control information, so a lot of Chinese people don't know about the oppression, the wide-scale oppression that goes on inside the country. One of the pathetic things about communism, I think, is that it makes everything about material things. And you can see this kind of kind of spreading... I think I can see that one of the cancers of Chinese society is its materialism. Uh, which is that... It's not, just, it's not just capitalist materialism. It's communist materialism. It's a focus on... So would you say that... Just that stuff. I mean, a lot of people would say that China is not a socialist no, state because, yeah. because they're still... I mean, yeah. if you think about the way that um, you're supposed to get to communism, you go yeah. through capitalism and then you go through sort of socialism yeah. and then you kind of come at communism. Co communism yeah. is supposed to be an end of the... Yeah. There's supposed to be no state anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, we're getting a bit into semantics maybe, mm. but, I mean, do you think that we're already... I, I would say that it's a kind of state capitalism... Of course. But do you think yeah. it's a kind of... Do you think that there's something Nobody expressly communist well, no, about no. the situation as it is? Well, the, the ideology that they have is extremely communistic. It's Leninist, isn't it? With the kind of yeah. strong state, well, um, centralised control of things. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, governmentally they're communist. And also, even just the way they approach things in terms of economics, um, what, what, I don't know, just in terms of what their country's about, the narrative, they control the narrative, the party controls the narrative, and it's about material concerns, and, but also their economy is also you know, extremely capitalistic, that's about material concerns. 
So you've had all this huge amount of energy poured into, well, they've managed to drag themselves out of poverty, but now they're faced with, you know, they've got this wealth, but they have no soul. Chinese will tell you that um, they would say that it's the West that are all about materials and that Chinese have a a more binding kind of um, national interest, which is more community and things like that. Well, yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I can see that in China. But um, the type of nationalism they have is... Uh, is an ugly one and it doesn't really mean anything in practice it's a hostile nationalism it's it's a really negative form of nationalism they don't like each other in China they just don't like foreigners they'll they'll take each other's side over foreigners but they don't like each other and that's it that's good enough they don't as far have, as Beijing's they don't have, they don't have solidarity there's no unity there really um, in terms of how they actually function as a society um, so yeah, I think I don't know. I think when if they invade, very, very, very atomized. If they invade Taiwan, I think you're 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 fellow in Guangzhou and you're fellow in Dongbei and you're yeah. fellow out in Xi'an. They're all going to kind of join in on the uh, yeah. celebrations. Yeah, but they, yeah, they will. But they don't like each other. Wrapping this up, you went to Guangzhou mm-hmm. and. You know, you tried to set up a school. How did it go, and and what what led you to finally leave China and stuff? So yeah, we we, we managed to set up the school. It was very difficult. Um, there was a lot of competition from nearby English schools. One of the problems I had was um, that I didn't have a visa to be able to teach in the school legally, um, and. Generally speaking, you need to have your English school open for about a year before the government will give you permission to hire foreigners. So it was very difficult in the first few months. And um, so I was teaching there a little bit. So I was teaching there illegally. And uh, we got almost caught out a few times. Um, A few times uh, my Chinese friend was accused of illegally hiring foreigners and mm. he managed to get out of it he said oh no um you know that 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 foreigner is a volunteer right and then um and then a bit later on i started teaching a very uh, nice and charming um chinese girl i taught her for maybe a couple of months one-on-one and then um one day her mum who I knew, who I'd met and talked to, walked in with a police officer and a local politician, or at least wow. an officer, and said, you have been, your school's been teaching my daughter illegally. So it was a setup. Shit. And this, this woman had been working, she worked for a local school. She had a connection with a school down the road, like 200 meters down the road. So it was all a setup. So, um, my Chinese friend said... But she did get a few good lessons from you in the meantime. Yeah, yeah, she did. She did, obviously didn't know anything. She was just uh, a pawn in this little game. All right. So, um, yeah, my Chinese friend just about got out of it, and I just about got away with, um, you know, escaped being deported, because he said... Really? He's a volunteer, I don't pay him. 
right. just said the same thing. He said, "You gave because," you know, and she said, "No." And you've you, been taking cash this whole time. Well, yeah, I was getting paid what I was doing, but only in cash. Um, well, she, uh, so the woman said, "I've been paying you. I've been paying you money." He's not a volunteer because I've been giving you money. Right. And my Chinese friend said, "Yeah, but I don't give it to him. I don't give it to the foreigner." Right. So it goes back to him. Goes back to yeah. Your this is for the electricity. This is for the running of the building and these the secretaries and stuff. <laughs> He's a volunteer. Right. He's not getting a salary. They couldn't prove right that I was receiving a salary. So that that's the most absurd argument ever. <laughs> so I got away with well. There's no there's no evidence. There's just it. no evidence. So it, um, it was a yeah. good lie, and um, we got away with it. I got away with. Oh, I would have been deported and fined. Right. I would have got deported and banned for several years. Shit. Um, so I got away with that, but it was just getting a bit too close I think, for comfort. I think so. foreigners who end up being uh, caught teaching illegally, they spend yeah. a few days in prison too. Yeah, nowadays they, they might do. I think so. It happens a lot it's more. It's not a pleasant thing. They've cracked down a lot more harshly these mm. days, as far as I yeah, as far as I know. Yes, yeah, so I ended up leaving the country and trying to get a visa. To return, but I couldn't get one probably because the school hadn't been open for long enough. So um, that was it. I just I didn't go back, and my Chinese friend there didn't really bother contacting me again, and he kind of just ignored me. And uh, yeah, I became quite disillusioned with that as well because right. he had said, you know, I was. His real friend. His, you know, we don't have real friends in China, and you're our true friend. In China, people just use each other and blah, blah blah. But in the end, I think, even though they did like me, obviously they wanted me to be around, and I was with them for, you know, I was very close to them, and I helped them to even to raise their their kids. Actually, I was kind of like an uncle in the family. But um, at the end of the day, this is their culture. You know, money is everything. Family is everything. But especially money, and I wasn't any use to them anymore. That's the reality of it. And then he contacted me again after that. Cuts pretty deep. Yeah. Well, it was. It was. It was the first time I had ever been betrayed by a friend, and it was a bit of a shock to the system. I didn't know that people did stuff like that, and I think I was quite naive before that. So it was quite weird when it happened. You wonder if that colours your. Overall perspective, or I think it's in in some way, not in a big way, in some way, it's probably made me a little bit jaded with mm. things. Yeah, but I think that because I have so many friends that are not like that, you know, it doesn't affect my view of friendship that much. But it, it affects, affects your view of China. China. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's fair enough. Yeah. And on that note, I reckon we can uh, yeah. tie this up. Right. So thanks, Tom. Thank you very much. Thanks for talking to us about your experience in China. It's a pleasure. And we'll see you next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'll probably take that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cheers, man. Yeah, I think that went pretty well. They have no soul, to quote Tom. Well, that's where a few years in the Chinese countryside leaves you. Thank you, Tom, for giving us your take on things out there. Always a pleasure. China is a cutthroat place, as Tom discovered. It is now. It was before. 
Perhaps the greatest survivor of modern China is Zhou Enlai. He's often held up as a true Chinese hero, and not just by the CCP's propaganda arms, but also by commentators around the world. The Enlai in Zhou Enlai means benevolence comes, which seems fitting. In the first half of the 20th century, he brought the warring communists and nationalists together to fight the Japanese, got the Chinese and Americans talking after 25 years of silence, and did his best to stave off the worst of Maoism. So next time, let's go back to Mao's China, for the story of one of the great communist revolutionaries, but one who tried to keep the train on the tracks, in a time of fervor and radicalism which threatened to derail, and often did derail, even the most powerful members of the party. <laughs>